Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. As always, thanks for subscribing, downloading and rating. Um, coming up on this episode, we're going to be talking about a different approach to essentially generating new blood. You may remember a few months ago, we spoke to uh, Dr. Alan Doctor, uh, who is working on synthetic blood that you could just add water to in a pouch. Well, this is a, a slightly different technique, but it's more advanced in that there are already human patients with blood that has been generated from stem cells and then transfused into them. We'll be hearing about that research in a few minutes time. But first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is double Dr. Lara Dungan, uh, medic and immunologist, and Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU's School of Chemistry. Um, Lara, our first story is absolutely incredible, if it is to be believed. It's to do with mind reading. Absolutely. This is based on the new technology that is running the ideas of chat GPT, so the, the um, artificial intelligence that is now widely available. And Dr. Alexander Huth in the University of Texas at Austin has released this paper, which looks at functional MRI. And what he's essentially saying is that the computer brain interface is here um, and that computers can read our mind. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but it is actually really exciting. The idea of fMRI or functional MRI is that it looks at the blood flow to certain regions of the brain and it can tell that that region of the brain is active at that exact moment. And it can be trained so well that it can actually, according to this paper, about half of the time decide what it is that the person is saying or thinking, a sentence that they are thinking. Now, there is a hard... Um, difficult part that they cannot get past and that's why this AI was essential. It takes about 10 seconds for the blood to flow to a certain area and ebb away and you cannot bypass that 10 seconds. That is just part of biology and so it means that if you are trying to assess every word that someone is thinking one individual word by word it's almost impossible with that sluggishness and that time lag. But what they did was they trained AI. They put three individuals into an fMRI machine for 16 hours each, and they trained them to understand what they were thinking in full sentences or, or quotes or ideas rather than individual words. And they say about half the time they came back with something that either closely resembled or exactly resembled what they were trying to say or slash think in their brain. So for example, one of the thoughts that someone was having was, I don't have my driver's license yet. And it was decoded as, as she has not even started to learn to drive yet. And another one was, I don't know whether to scream, cry or run away. Instead, I said, leave me alone. And the, the AI came back with, started to scream and cry. And then she said, I told you to leave me alone. So it does have problems with the personalization. So whether it's he, she, I, but beyond that, it seems to come back with very similar text to what the person is saying or thinking about 50% of the time. And you can imagine that's only going to get better. Now it's personalized. So one person's thought process does not work for another person. So that each person had to spend 16 hours in the machine for their thoughts to be readable and no one else's was readable with the same algorithm. But it's fascinating and it opens up the ability for baby people who have locked in syndrome, people who can't communicate to be able to communicate. And also the very futuristic idea of the computer brain interface, us being able to think a thought and order a computer to do something. So it's really, really exciting research. It sounds completely science fiction, um, but, you know, I can totally understand why individual words would be difficult to get. But the idea that concepts are, are now, it seems, somehow 
readable from the human mind by just looking at blood flow in the brain and piecing that together based on, on, on a trained model of, of AI. That is extraordinary. Why doesn't it work for everybody? Uh, why does it need to be individual training? So they spent 16 hours teaching the machine. So they gave these people podcasts to listen to. They gave them things to think about, stories to read. And they took 16 hours to train the machine to this person's thought process and this person's essentially brainwaves, I suppose, but really their blood flow. And then they tested the machine afterwards. So without those 16 hours of training for the individual, it was complete gobbledygook. It was completely irrelevant. But it is it is so, so, sounding like science fiction. It really does sound so utterly futuristic. I cannot fathom how this AI is intelligent enough to do this, but we've been saying that continuously for the last year. How is the AI able to do the things it can do? And this is just another, I think, exciting, others will say terrifying thing that it's capable of. Uh, Susan, our second story has also to do with brains, um, but rather um, alive brains, thinking um, thoughts that are being read. This is to do with dying brains. Yes. So this work is about understanding the near-death experiences. So you know, we all know the different ones, you know, a bright light or vivid imagery or a realer than real experience that people um, say that they have um, if they're close to death and then they come back to, to tell us about their experience. So trying to actually understand what's happening here is, is not very easy, though. And the other thing about these types of near-death experiences is that regardless of your religious or cultural background, you know, it's universal. So this this is really quite unique to the human condition. And researchers in the University of Michigan have studied the signals given off by brains of people who are dying, and they measured a flurry of activity just before death. So they used EEG measurements, which are basically the measurements where you put electrodes on the brain and study the electrical signals that are produced to study the activity in brains of, now it's four patients who were beyond medical help. Um, after cardiac arrest. And these types of near-death experiences are very high in people um, who have had cardiac arrest. So about 10 to 15 people, or 10 to 15% of people who suffer cardiac arrest and come back to us, um, they um, have these types of experiences. So this is why these they were chosen as this cohort. Um, but the patients that were studied here were patients that were on life support after all other um, interventions had been tried. Um, so they were sort of clinically dead. They were clinically dead and they were on life support, but they still had the EEG connected. So they were able to monitor kind of all the activity throughout everything that was going on, including the moment they took them off the life support. And it was in the two hours after the life support was was removed that they saw this flurry of activity. And what they saw was wow. a surge of, of what's called gamma wave activity. And gamma waves are the fastest waves produced in the brain. And they are generally produced when you're really intensely focused on something or when you're really highly alert. So the surge seen here was really quite unexpected considering the, the condition that these patients were in. And moreover, the, the area of the brain where this happened was in the area associated with, with visual hallucinations and dreaming, which ties wow. into that concept of you know real, real vivid imagery that people talk about when they've had this sort of near-death experience. Now, the, the authors do say that there's only... They only studied four patients and it was only in two patients that they saw this happen. So it's a very small cohort. So they're very mm. cautious not to sort of draw too many conclusions. But they, they've obviously, they've said larger studies should be should be carried out and wider studies to, to understand how genuine this is across people and what it might mean for what's happening in death, especially after these things like cardiac arrest. 
Researchers never say, well, that's that then, no, do they? It's never done. <laughs> that's that. Science We've never answered that question. Them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so what does this tell us? I mean, do, do they do they posit any theories or do they just say, look, this is interesting that this has happened? Do they, do they give us any ideas what they think this looks like? So they, they don't have anything at the moment. I mean, there was a study done about 10 years ago that this kind of corroborates what it was the same researcher that was involved in both. So they are very cautious not to draw anything too much, except for the fact that people who go undergo these near that experiences might have the same flurry of gamma reactivity and it might be associated with sort of i don't know the shutting down of the body they're not really sure so i won't speculate yeah, but, yeah. Um, okay you know there's it's just i suppose quite significant the the intensity of those waves and how um how fast they are to be happening at such a, a time when your body is shutting down is very unusual lara our third story has to do with coral reefs and uh, a positive idea at least yeah, it's definitely a positive idea. This is research that they're doing over in um, a reef called the Ningaloo Reef, which is in Western Australia. People have probably heard of coral bleaching. So the idea is that when coral, which is a live creature, is stressed by condition changes, so temperature, light, that, that kind of thing, or differences in nutrients, and, and obviously temperature being the key thing because the water temperature is going up with climate change, they expel the, the symbiotic algae, which lives in their tissues, and it causes them to be completely white. There was a famous event in 1998 with the Great Barrier Reef, um, and it's actually happened many times since they think it's happening around about three times a decade. But by about 2050, it's going to be happening every single year if if waters continue to rise at the temperature they are. But what they're doing with this research um, over in Western Australia is they are taking this reef and they have some breeds of coral within the reef that are more resistant to hotter temperatures. Naturally, they already are more resistant. And what they're doing is they're they're basically floating above the reef at nighttime and corals are hermaphrodites. So they will re- release an egg and sperm bundle in the nighttime and each of the different little breeds of coral will do it at different times and they're capturing these and they're crossbreeding the hardier more resistant coral with the ones that are much more vulnerable to the temperature changes and already live in the slightly colder part of the reef and what they're finding is very successful so far they're they're finding that the baby coral are much more resilient much more capable of surviving um, and it's it's a really nice little story to show that maybe we can do certain things to help mitigate climate change now the obvious and overarching thing here is that there are more important things that we can do to mitigate climate change and you know stopping climate change and temperature rise would be key but it is nice to show that people are finding little ways around some of the problems that we're seeing so hopefully this will not be the end of coral as we know it and um, there might be more advanced uh, gene flow techniques that they can use in the future but these quite natural ways of just crossbreeding are very exciting and interesting Uh, Very good. Uh, Susan, our final story has to do with AI and cancer. Yes. So again, AI has been in the news a lot this week, um, as we know. But one area that AI and and machine learning has been developing steadily has been um, in helping to detect disease at at an early stage. And this has been something we've been talking about for for years now. And work published this week in the journal eBiomedicine has developed an algorithm that can detect lung cancer by looking at CT scans. So the team of experts, um, they're based at the Royal Marston NHS Foundation Trust, the Institute of Cancer Research in London and Imperial College London, developed this tool um, and they used CT scans from about, well, 500 patients. And it was found that the tool was able to recognize and detect um, a cancerous um, nodule on a CT scan more efficiently um, and more effectively, they said, than current diagnosis um, methods, which 
Um, I believe they, they were referring to basically, you know, human eye and, and a doctor or physician sort of looking at, at the CT scan. Um, and he used a measure called the area under the curve. And basically, if it was a one, then it got it perfect across over the 500. And if it was 0.5, then it was no better than just chance uh, guessing whether or not it was cancerous or not. And the um, the algorithm scored 0.87. So it's close enough to being sort of perfect or as close to perfect as uh, for, for a start. They're, they're, they're pretty impressed by. Um, and then it also correctly identified 82% of high-risk patients in the group that needed early intervention. So they were the idea is here that um, being able to detect lung cancer early, you know, 60% of lung cancer in England is diagnosed at stage three or four. So um, early detection is is beneficial massively. The fact that this algorithm might be able to identify people who are at higher risk or, or um, need early intervention um, is quite impressive. I mean, I don't know. I think, Lara, you might speak on this, how useful you think it might be in the world of medicine to have someone, something working alongside you, you know, when you're trying to, to multitask. I think it looks good. Yeah, no, look, it definitely looks really exciting. And I suppose, you know, at the moment, radiologists do a very good job. The, the real limiting factor is access to machines rather than access to doctors and results. So if AI can create more machines and give us more time and more people to work them, I think it would be an even better system. But no, I'm look, I'm, you know, don't tell radiologists, but it's probably the way it's going. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it, look, the the thing now is to get this technology in into the clinic because it, it, it's it's clear that for one reason or another, being able to spot things better or um, find patterns that we can't necessarily see. AI um, certainly can be a very powerful tool in the clinic in helping diagnosis, particularly identifying things more early. And I guess it's, it, it would be great to start seeing these things being rolled out in the major hospitals of the world. But it looks like that will happen relatively soon. Very interesting re- um, research this week. Dr. Lara Dungan and uh, Dr. Susan Keller, thanks for your time. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Blood is a precious commodity that is often in demand for all sorts of medical reasons, including A&E, blood disorders, and even some cancer treatments. The holy grail is, of course, to be able to synthesize it so that we can have as much as we need for a patient whenever they need it. Until now, that's been sort of science fiction. But Dr. Rebecca Cardigan from NHS Blood and Transplant has been working on growing red blood cells in the lab and they have already been transplanted into human patients in a clinical trial. She joins me now. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Let's start off with the basics. What exactly is the function of our blood and why would we need to replace it? Um, we obviously produce normally in our uh, blood normally in our body. And if for some reason we either become depleted of blood or our blood cells are not working properly, then we need to replace the function of, of those cells. So when people talk about blood, typically they talk about red blood cells. So these are the um, cells in blood that carry oxygen around your body to your tissues where it's needed so that we our bodies can do all the normal activity that we would like it to. So they're absolutely key in enabling us to to function and be alive. What is the other part of blood? You talked about red blood cells that transport oxygen. What is the rest of blood made of? So we have other cellular types, such as white blood cells, which are really important in terms of our immunity. We have platelets, um, which are really important in terms of helping blood uh, clot. And then we have plasma, which is the liquid part of blood. So this is what our cells are suspended in and is also very important in, in blood clotting 
um, if we injure ourselves. When we look to uh, synthesize blood, whether uh, going down the road of using stem cells to grow uh, blood cells or uh, synthesizing blood, we're just talking about the red blood cells. Why is that? Why is um, is the other p- components of blood, why are they not important in this equation? Um Well, they are actually important. And although people have been focused on growing red cells from stem cells, there are also strands of activity looking at growing other cell types of blood. So um, in particular, platelets and and also types of white blood cells. So this whole um, type of activity is not unique to red blood cells. There are groups working on other cell types. And then in terms of the fluid portion of blood, uh, which is plasma, so plasma is transfused. Uh, People are also working on, if you like, alternatives to the fluid part of of blood as well. So this whole strand of activity is not just uh, restricted to red cells. Uh, Some of the systems in our body um, are 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 not as interchangeable as others and i'm wondering if we strip out blood cells and put in artificial blood cells or lab grown blood cells how do we make sure that they work as expected in that environment of uh, other cells and plasma and so on so if if we take red blood cells as an example so although we are growing these red cells starting from stem cells the red cells that are produced are really identical to blood cells that would be produced in your body. So uh, when we started out this um, uh, project to look at growing red cells, that was our aim, was to produce red cells that are identical to the ones we would produce in our body, but we're just producing them outside our body. So a key aspect for us in making sure that these cells are safe and behave as we think they should do, um, is to try and mimic what happens in your body as closely as possible. And that's really what we're doing here. Talk to me about this research that you're doing, looking at uh, growing blood cells from stem cells. How does that process begin and how do you get the cells to differentiate? What are the biggest challenges? So um, in the, the trial that we're doing, we're actually growing relatively small amounts of red cells for the trial that we need. But what we do is we start off, in, in our case, with stem cells that we've isolated from blood from a blood donor. So we start off by taking a standard blood donation from a blood donor who is a volunteer in the study. And then we send our blood donation to our advanced therapies unit um, for them to extract the stem cells from that donation. We do this using magnetic beads that have basically got antibodies that pull out um, the the necessary cells. We then take those stem cells and we encourage them to be red cells, effectively by putting them into flasks containing nutrient media that have got special growth factors that we know will encourage them to become red cells. So that process takes about Uh, three weeks. And we then concentrate up the red cells that we have got in solution into a final format that we then put into vials uh, ready for infusion. When you say concentrate the red cells, what does that mean? Do these cells divide and multiply like like normal cell cultures? Um, No, it's just that when we culture the red cells or grow them in the laboratory, these are in large volumes of fluid. So we have to remove some of that fluid to leave just the red cells that we would like uh, in the end product. What are the limiting factors in terms of um, 
increasing the amount of red blood cells you get from this process. So you, you get these stem cells that are floating around in blood, um, you isolate them, and then you get them to differentiate into blood cells. Yeah. What stops you from creating a, an endless river of blood? That's a weird uh, <laughs> visual okay, metaphor, but so, you know what I mean? An endless supply. Yeah. yeah. So th there's a number of things here. And um, so my colleagues, uh, the research group in Bristol, have looked at whether that uh, we can use, whether, rather than isolating stem cells from a blood donation, using more of a stem cell line that's more of a renewable source of the stem cells in the first place. So that's one thing. But then secondly, the actual process of growing these cells in the laboratory at the moment, um, as I described, is in, in a, a big liquid container full of large volumes of media. And that is also quite expensive because we have to put various growth factors in to, to grow the red cells. So at the moment, in order to be able to use more red cells, one of the key challenges is what we would call scale up and going from here to being able to produce much bigger quantities. And we may need to think about growing the red cells slightly differently. So be uh, in our body, our red cells are grown in the bone marrow. And rather than growing red cells in a big flask, effectively, we may need to mimic the bone marrow much more and to have these cells growing in more of a, a three-dimensional scaffold, which would be much more like how it happens in the body. So at the moment, those are the big challenges, are going from where we are now, being able to create uh, enough red cells to do the trials that we're doing, to creating much larger volumes of, of red cells is really a key, a key next step. You mentioned there uh, creating a cell line. Um, people might be familiar of the, the HeLa cells, which are um, a, a commercial product. You could just buy it off the shelf and, and, and test um, your science on these cells that all originated from one woman, Henrietta Lacks, uh, many years ago. Is that approach um, taking cells and, and creating a cell line for blood, is, is that possible or, or what makes that um, a challenge? Yes, I mean, clearly we have demonstrated that that's possible from a laboratory point of view. If you were going to do that routinely, of course, there are considerations around the um, sort of consent and ethical considerations for the donor of those cells. Sure. And clearly, you know, things have moved on since the times that you described. And it's absolutely critical if we're going to undertake activity like that, um, that the uh the donor of the material is appropriately uh, consented in, into such a, a use or study. So, for example, in the trial that we are currently running, um, both the donors and the, the recipients in the study are uh, fully consented into the trial with appropriate information ahead of time. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I was. I, I, there's definitely lots of things to think about when it, when it comes to a donor uh, supply and and multiplying out cells. But uh, from from a technical point of view, I was wondering whether or not the, it, it was possible to create something like that. Um, yes, I mean, from a technical point of view, we've already done work to show that that is um, feasible. Uh, but we would obviously need to consider in the future. You know, if we were going to do that routinely, you know, additional considerations around that, as I've described. Yeah. Um, having control over how these blood cells are are grown, does that give you an ability to make them the sort of cells that you want? Because it, there's there's problems with compatibility for, for some donors and there's certain cells that you'd like to be a, a particular way to treat certain types of diseases, right? This would give you much more control over the sort of cells that you're getting in. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. So by being able to start with stem cells, we can select, for example, the blood group of those cells that we would want to. Uh, and so we can make the cells more universal or we can make them of very rare blood types for people where it's currently very difficult to find matched blood, for example. So that's one way we can alter those uh, or, or think about those cells. We can also... Um, uh, think about using those cells as a, a vehicle for delivering drugs to people. So red cells have a long lifespan in the circulation of around 120 days, about three months. So there are some applications, for example, for patients with very rare enzyme deficiencies where you could load those enzymes onto your red cells and use them more or less like a car to deliver those to, to where they need to go. Mm. And then the final way um, that we think those cells um, may if you like, differ to standard donated cells, is that they are all absolutely new when we grow them. And in a unit of donated blood, you have red cells that are varying age, those that have just been born to those that are reaching the end of their, their lifespan. And we think that the, the fresher, newer cells will survive for longer in the circulation. And that's a key um, attractiveness that we are trying to test in this trial. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that young blood uh, has a rejuvenating uh, effect on the old from from that uh, fascinating experiment where they, they conjoin two mice and they, they interchange their blood. Um, what about this trial then? Because the, the great news is that this isn't just a theory. We've actually seen the first transfusion with lab-grown blood. How is that patient doing? Uh, what sort of um, understanding do we have as to how well this product is working? And what next? Yes, so we're, we're partway through the trial now and we have participants that have um, received uh, uh, cells that we have grown in the laboratory. All our participants are doing very well. Um, I can't tell you how well the cells are doing because I'm blinded to the data. Um, so we won't know that until we reach um, what uh, an analysis of the data partway through the trial a bit further along. So I can't tell you anything about that till, till we get further towards the end. But the participants themselves are, are all doing well. And you said that um, this is a laborious and quite expensive process. But is the goal one day to be able to produce lab-grown blood whenever we need it? Or is that just realistically never going to happen? I mean, I think we probably think that it's unlikely that this is going to be something that is for the vast majority of patients and that we see this as being important for particular patient groups where the advantages of the cells that I previously described are much more important. And we've clearly got some challenges to overcome in terms of, you know, scale up to get to that point. So, I think it's fair to say, you know, we do not see this replacing blood donors. It's really important that we have blood donors come and, and donate blood. But we do see there being some advantages of being able to grow cells in this way for particular patient groups, as, as we described, those where it's hard to find matched blood, those who regularly get red cells. And therefore, if you have red cells that last longer in the circulation, they may need to come back fewer times for their transfusions and so on and so forth. So I think that's where we see the utility of this. A while back, we had a fascinating interview with a, a researcher called Alan Doctor, and he was looking at, at synthesizing blood. And 
He seemed to sort of say that in the not too distant future, we would be able to just add water to synthetic blood and use that as uh, as um, red blood cells to to, to, to use in a transfusion. Um, it seemed a little bit further off than than uh, uh, he was describing. I'm just wondering, in terms of an approach, is is your approach more difficult, more challenging? Um, is there is there merit in figuring out the synthetic approach, or what are the challenges there? I see them being complementary strands of activity, really. So we're looking at this in a slightly different way. The work that we're doing is growing. Uh, more or less identical cells that your body would do but outside of your body and trying to make that a sort of renewable source uh what uh dr doctor was talking about was uh basically alternatives to red cells so this may be a part of red cells for example the hemoglobin that they contain and making that in in a artificial solution or way that could be um transfused personally i think um all of these strands of activity have merit because we're all looking at solutions to some of the same problems. And there will be different challenges associated with each of those pathways. So I, I personally see these these activities being complementary. Really exciting stuff. And I can't wait to hear how your patients have done when uh, you've published the research uh, to, to see how these lab grown blood cells are doing in patients. Dr. Rebecca Cardigan works at NHS Blood and Transplant and is a lecturer at University of Cambridge. Thanks, Rebecca. I had no idea that we had stem cells just swimming around in our blood. Um, so you, you learn something new every day. Um, right, time to look back at some of your comments from last week's programme. We were talking to Anne Moore about vaccines and she was talking to us about new technology where um, you could just put a vaccine patch on your arm rather than getting a needle. Um, lots of great responses to that. Um, one person says, I absolutely hate needles. So the idea of research that is steering away from their use, I think will make it broadly a much easier and appealing option to get vaccines. But how do researchers plan to overcome vaccine hesitancy, especially from misinformation? I, I do a bit of work in this area, training vaccine researchers on uh, this very subject, Louise, as it happens. It's tricky. It's not very simple. Um, and the best thing you can do is really try and build up your credentials and authority and associate yourself with really um, uh, trusted sources within whatever region or demographic you are. So it, it is not a simple solution, to be honest. But um, I, I, I'm, I mean, you'd hope that this would um, be a more acceptable version of vaccine delivery than needles that supposedly contain 5G chips. But I'm sure the crazies will come up with some reason why this might not work. I think that work will still apply, whether it's needles, patches, a pill or whatever, when it comes to vaccines. Some people just uh, want to watch the royal burn, isn't that right? Um, we were also talking about parrots and how parrots were trained to um, to call each other up if they were on their own. And it, it turns out that parrots loved uh, WhatsApping their friends and, and doing videos with each other when trained to do so. They do it all the time. They'd preen with each other and they basically created a social network for parrots. It's very cool. Eve says, very interesting. And Derek says, were they able to track conversations with parrots or was it primarily mimicking each other's behaviours? Well, I mean, look, it's difficult to determine what we consider conversations because, of course, parrots don't speak English. They they behave um, like birds. And so um, it was certainly not just copying each other. They did seem to be 
um, communicating, but uh, I don't know how you decode that conversation at, at, at where we are with the technology just right now. Um, and John wants to know how long did the chats typically last? That's not something I know, and I will see if I can find out. And we were also talking, if you remember, about restoring hear loss. And um, we heard from Dr. Chen um, in America, who is working on regrowing the hair cells inside your cochlea to return damaged hearing loss. Um, someone says, I wonder how Dr. Chen's findings would ultimately impact industries like hearing aid providers, or does he envisage that some form of hearing aid will always be needed? Hadn't really thought about the commercial aspect beyond will this work? Can I get it? And how will this transform people's lives? I hadn't thought about the hearing aid industry um, and, and how it might affect them. Uh, to be honest, I, I think, you know, any advancement on the technologies we have now is, is, is hugely welcome. And if it means the end of hearing aids and the return of perfect clarity for hearing, I'm, I'm all for that, to be honest. Um, that's it from us on this week's Future Proof Podcast. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, John Byrne, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. Thank you, of course, for listening. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday, where we speak to Helen Chersky about the engine in our oceans. Until then, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.